Hello and welcome to the Winston Marshall Show with me, Winston Marshall. I sat down with one of my heroes, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Islam is back in the public discourse. It is back in the news cycle. Not only have we seen Muslim groups marching through the streets of London every weekend since October 7th, but also now there's a rise in anti-Muslim hate and MPs are even saying they are worried for their lives and they've been getting death threats from Islamists. So what's the truth about Islam? We went for a deep dive and who better to give me that than Ayan, who from Somalia originally was a Muslim, then joined the Muslim Brotherhood before apostatizing, becoming a new atheist, a prominent new atheist, and apostate twice over. She is now a Christian. So we, we took a deep dive into Islam, the history of Islam. If you don't know about this religion, this is a good starting point. I wanted to understand myself, but I also wanted to talk about and understand what is the future like? How can we assimilate, integrate? What are the problems with two different groups coming together? And where is their hope and alignment? It's a great privilege to have this job to speak to heroes like I am. If you want to support me and support the show, all that I ask, kindly, humbly, is you press the subscribe button. If you press the subscribe button, I can bring on more great guests like Ayan, and we can explore more difficult, taboo topics that the others are not covering. Without further ado, Ayan Hosieli. Thank you for watching the Winston Marshall Show. I guess maybe it'd be helpful to understand what's this spread of these different types of Islam today. So is this a small group of extremists? Like, for example, I remember after the Manchester Arena bombing, uh, the numbers came out of MI5 that it was, there were 22,000 jihadis mm. in Britain. I've, the numbers since suggest that there are even more. So now 22,000 is a lot. That's a, you know, a small football stadium. Having said that, the, the numbers are that I think we are, uh, something like 4 million Muslims in Britain. So 22,000 out of 4 million is a, a small, percentage of that yes. it's a small group of that so let, let's let's talk about uh we'll talk about the west we'll talk about europe and britain yeah. uh, what percentage of yes. muslims form these different attitudes i think that's a very good question and i think this is um a debate we've been having again for decades uh, and we call it the fringe debate so um when we talk about radical islam political islam jihadism islamism um what fraction of Muslims believe in these ideas and are ready to practice it? And it's very hard to give you specific numbers because we're talking about an idea. So it's very, very difficult to count mm. in that way. What we call radical uh, is, is it's weird because Islamists don't think of themselves as radical anything. They think of themselves as sincere, true believers and so it was it's always going to be difficult to quantify um the number of people who are radical in their hearts and who um will cross the threshold to violence or who will help us cross the threshold to violence um it's difficult to quantify that it will forever remain difficult to quantify that mm -hmm. but what is not hard to understand is that it always takes a minority of very determined men to change societies. Uh, 11 September 2001 was committed by only 19 men. And it changed 
mm. America. And it cost a great deal of blood and treasure um, to, uh, um, to combat that. And I still think America has not succeeded in fully combating it. If you look at the 7th of October, it was probably how many people actually committed the act itself? A few hundred. A few hundred. And we're on the, on the brink of a third world war. Um, so small groups of men who are determined and who are high on these types of radical ideologies can cause huge changes. And so the fringe argument of how many people are actually committed to this, I think of it as a sideshow. Um, I think what we should look at uh, and is more important is what have this fringe achieved when it comes to changing the hearts and minds of the masses? Mm. And I came to the West in the Netherlands in 1992, and it was really a very small group of people whom you would describe as radical Muslims. They were setting up mosques, printing presses, newspapers, etc., they were doing this because they weren't allowed to do these things in their own countries. They came from Egypt, they came from Pakistan, they came from different parts of the Muslim world where they were seen as radical and they were seen as um, insurrectionists, uh, inspiring people to overthrow governments and the like. And so they were denied freedom of religion and they were denied freedom of speech, they were denied freedom of association and they came here. They came to Britain, they came to France, they came to different parts of the West and they established themselves. And a lot of these were um, these organizations that I'm talking about uh, were grounded in the Muslim Brotherhood. They were the tentacles of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the, these people who call themselves supporters of Palestine, um, many of them associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And it is these early Muslim Brotherhood organizations that established themselves in the West that were able to develop a communication strategy to radicalize Muslim immigrants, whether they came as guest workers or whether they came with their families or later on whether they came as asylum seekers and refugees, it doesn't matter. But they were able to establish a network of mosques, madrasas, Islamic schools, Islamic centers, Islamic neighborhoods, um, even Islamic you know, television satellites. And then of course, later on when the internet came, they adapted even more. And so to a certain degree, what was a very small group of, again, determined men, by getting the opportunity to flourish in a free and open society, achieved an objective that is to persuade uh, hundreds of thousands of Muslims who live in the West to think like them about Islam. It's worth just unpacking Muslim Brotherhood. I'm conscious of listeners who uh, are maybe new to this topic. Now, I also think it's worth remembering that Hamas are an offshoot of Muslim Brotherhood, certainly ideologically. Can you ex just explain the Muslim Brotherhood and, and who they are? The Muslim Brotherhood was founded in uh, Egypt by a man named Hassan al-Banna, who was a teacher. This was done in the 1920s. And again, he's one of those leaders who answered the question, why did we decline? Why did Islam fall and get colonized? He is the one who answered by saying, we have to go back to the time of Muhammad. And the time of Muhammad he was referring to was the period in Medina. And he was uh, uh, convinced that the way to do it fast was through dawa, through the call back. And he, he believed that... Um, 
the faith muscle of the regular Muslim in Egypt had become too lax. And so his first mission was to strengthen that, strengthen the faith of the fellow Muslims. And he started the way he thinks that the prophets started it by having a small number of believers. That's how you always start. And from there you expand. And uh, they did expand and grow. And the Muslim Brotherhood that Hassan al-Banna established is uh, uh, sprouted, not only Hamas, but sprouted Al-Qaeda, um, ISIS, uh, almost every Sunni radical organization that you can think of. Mm. Um, I know a lot about the Muslim Brotherhood because when I lived in Africa as a teenager, it was the Muslim Brotherhood organizations that came into our communities. But as Hassan al-Banna was establishing and preaching um, and and um, inspiring young Muslims and radicalizing them, um, similar organizations and similar thinkers were emerging in in India, the Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, uh, different parts of the Middle East. So there was what you call maybe a revival, a reawakening of the of the Muslim spirit. And um, and then I also want you to think a little bit about Saudi Arabia and the role that Saudi Arabia played for a very, very long time, which was with the oil money that Saudi Arabia had, um, it financed the um, the spread of Wahhabism, which is and Salafism, which are probably the most culturally speaking, the most radical, traditional, backward-looking forms uh, of Islam. So, with with that money, backward-looking, as in to the Medina period of Islam. Of yes, to the Medina period. But I think what, uh, if you ask me, what is the difference between, say, the Wahhabis and the Muslim Brotherhood? The Muslim Brotherhood were from the get-go. Uh, saw themselves as a political organization and their objectives was to take over governments initially by force and then they learned over time that they couldn't do that by force and then decided to do it through dawah, through infiltration, through various forms of deception, all under the name of dawah. It's very, very difficult to arrest people who are only preaching or who seem to be only preaching or who seem to be only collecting charity for the zakat, um, but who also have political objectives. So the Muslim Brotherhood was in that sense... um, um, a challenge to the government of the day, mm-hmm. calling the Egyptian government and other Muslim governments uh, un-Islamic mm. and atheist, or just describing them as as non-Muslim. Whereas the Wahhabis, um, because these Saudi royal families um, established it in collaboration with the Wahhabi Muslims. They they gave them they gave the Wahhabis these monarchs gave them um, the the authority to a certain degree um, permission to manage if you want the moral framework of the country and so the Saudi government and the Wahhabi establishment for a long time worked together uh, for the longest time and I think maybe. The only time that there is uh, 
some tension between them is with the current crown prince because the current crown prince wants to modernize Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabi establishment may not be on board with all of that. And so I, I, I think somewhere there, there's a sense that the Saudis... Well, have- I'd go further because the Saudis, since Al-Qaeda were committing a, uh, terrorist attacks in Saudi Arabia, yeah. the Saudis have actually been some of the best at de-radicalizations, de-radicalization of Islamists within Islam. But I don't want to get the Saudis off the hook so easily because the Saudis invested financially in uh, the radicalization and the Islamization of the whole world. Everywhere you go, every corner of the world, you're going to find some sort of Moscow Islamic center built with Saudi money. And even the Al-Qaeda years, so in Afghanistan in 1979, when um, the Soviet Union um, conquered that country, invaded that country, um, there was a lot of uh, opposition um, bottom up, but also... Um, within Afghanistan or within within Afghanistan, yeah. uh, a lot of fighters, Islamist fighters, uh, one of them Bin Laden, um, were sent there to fight, and they had the blessing and the endorsement of Saudi Arabia among others. But I think those governments back then thought that the problem was going to stay there. They never thought that it was going to come back and um, and challenge them back home. Mm-hmm. So if you if you go and look into that period, the relationships between some of these radical Islamist organizations and thinkers, there's a frenemy period right. when they worked together. And, and, and then these Arab governments, not just Saudi Arabia, they started uh, to look at these Islamist groups differently when they realized they're coming for us. And I think that realization was at its most stark during the years of ISIS when large numbers of Saudi men were leaving to go to Syria and Iraq to establish that nascent Islamic state. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it became plain to the UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, that uh, this is something that they couldn't sustain in their own uh, countries, in their own societies. So the Muslim Brotherhood is banned and the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia are to a certain degree tamed. But none of these forces are entirely gone. Hmm. The irony is that these forces, in particular the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the Sunni radicals, have found their home in the West, in Britain, in France, in America, and they have they've been able to do this because of the West being an open society where all these freedoms that they eventually wanted to destroy give them the opportunity to spread their ideas. What's the story then of from Saudi Arabia yeah. through to Britain? Like they're coming to Britain now. What's that jump there? Can you paint that for me? Uh, what's the jump? Okay. Um, the role of Saudi Arabia is as more and more Muslim immigrants came to Europe and to the West. Um, and the Saudi government had uh, the mission, uh, they budgeted for the spread of Islam throughout the world um, through da'wah, peaceful means, quote-unquote peaceful. I'll come back to why I put that in quotation marks. Why do you put it in quotation marks? I put it in quotation marks because it's peaceful up to a point. And as you can see now, the intimidation, 
the some of the tactics that are used uh, far from from peaceful. And then later on, we had the eruptions in terrorism, where on the one hand, some of these Islamist organizations were saying they were condemning, but on the other hand, they were sheltering the uh, uh, not only sheltering but also producing the inspiration to justify the terrorist attacks. So that's why I put it in quotation marks. Um, but the government of Saudi Arabia, it's not just the government of the Saudi the wealthy oil countries for a long time would invest a lot of money in building the infrastructure, the mosques, uh, the, the sending of the imams with the very radical ideas to come and preach here. And so they would put, they would write the big checks for this spread of Islam uh, and radical Islam in Europe, in America, elsewhere. The radical Islamists in Britain and in, in America would go to Riyadh and uh, explain to the locals there, this is what we are doing, uh, can you help us out? And they would come back with a lot of money and then they were able to build the infrastructure to bring in the Muslim immigrants. The Muslim immigrants uh, of obviously a country like Britain, there are former colonies, so there was that colonial relationship of why Muslims decided to come from uh, the former colonies of Britain to Britain, former colonies of France to France to um, France, and so on and so forth. What I'm trying to do is I'm going to try and separate being Muslim from these countries and from being these political movements. A lot of Muslims from Turkey and Morocco and um, other Muslim-majority countries came to Europe in the 19, end of 1960s, 1970s, to find jobs here. Their plan was to go back. They're the guest workers. They didn't go back. Those people who came were not radical anything. They were Muslim. They identified as Muslim, but they weren't radical at all. Mm. They became radicalized in the infrastructure of mosques and Islamic centers that were established with Saudi money, among other things. And I'm not saying the money came exclusively from Saudi Arabia. So they, were look, they came looking for work. They were looking for a better life, prosperity. Yes. And then... They, and then when... Yes, exactly. So when you're living in different parts of the UK and you, you're seeking to go to a mosque, well, in the beginning, uh, in some of these countries, I know the Netherlands, Scandinavia, and they want that many mosques. They want, they want places to go and worship. And so I think... What I want to make very clear is the, those fast guest workers that came here and came to Europe, they were not seeking to, radical, to radicalize Europe. They were not seeking to take over Europe. They were not seeking to spread radical Islam. But once the infrastructure by the Islamists was spread, and again, I want to insist, not all the money came from Saudi Arabia. Some of it was raised locally, but it doesn't matter. The infrastructure is here. Then they were able to tap to this ready population who came to work and then later on as asylum seekers who were seeking a place to go to, to worship, seeking community, and then radicalize their children. And so it's very interesting to see that first layer of people who came in the 60s are less radical than the kids who were born here into mm. Muslim households. Mm. There's an example of that, which is the Manchester Arena bombing. Uh, I think his name was... Salman, uh, Salman Abedi, and he was his father came over from Libya, and 
had been fighting Gaddafi, who was actually part of a prescribed jihadi group that was banned in the UK. Um, and but he was born and raised in Manchester, um, and it was the second generation. He was second generation, and but he became radicalized and yes. led to the Manchester Arena attack in twenty. I think it was eighteen. Why is it that uh, second generation and more would be more radical? Is it because they're in those mosques? Well, it's because, and here's, I think, where people like Christopher Caldwell come in. Um, there was a debate going on, still going on for a long time, uh, about the integration or assimilation into Western societies of Muslim communities. Why did that not happen? And so, on the one hand, you have uh, the, the parents who had one foot in Europe and one foot home. Remember, the parents only came to work. The men came to work. And the plan was make a little bit of money and then go home. And then they didn't go home and they brought their families in. And so the host countries did not really set up any kind of assimilation programs that was designed to make these communities adopt Western values and Western norms and Western customs. Number one. Number two. Christianity itself, um, as a, 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 as, a, as a moral force, um, you know, um, mounting missions of Christianizing these newcomers, that never happened. And if it did, it was negligible. Mm -hmm. And now here you have um, these determined Islamist movements that want to set up shop. Mm -hmm. Here, and these populations that's a, a kind of lost these the young men who were born, the young boys who were born into Muslim families, looking for something to do, not really feeling welcomed in um, among you know their teenage friends, among their communities, neighborhoods, uh, and so on. I think that was fertile ground for these Islamists to say, "We will give you a sense of purpose, and we know." your identity because you as a Muslim this is how to behave and this is how to be a good Muslim and that is precisely what happened to me when I was 14, 15 years old living in a foreign country not feeling entirely at home in we you lived in Kenya when you went to the Netherlands 14, 15 no I didn't, no no I, when I say it happened to me this is what the Muslim Brotherhood did when we were in wow. when we lived in Kenya when my family lived in Kenya so my family uh, my mother my grandmother my brother sister and me we lived in Kenya my my father had left so this is a female only household there is a young boy my brother who was 16 years old in the muslim brotherhood members of the muslim brotherhood when they come preaching in the beginning they sound really reasonable they're taking young people off the streets my brother had dropped out of school they bring you into the mosque they give you a sense of purpose they tell you the difference between right and wrong and so that's exactly what they were doing for young men young boys and girls to, to a certain degree who were born in Britain, in France, in Scandinavia, in, you know. So far, so in, good. I mean, that's. So far, so good. Yeah. Exactly. So far, so good. So it was a win win for everyone. And so if there are young men standing around in clusters causing trouble, um, the host society would think, well, now they're going to a mosque and they seem to be, they seem to be fine. At least they're off the streets. And that, that attitude of, oh, at least they're off the streets. Mm. Uh, that did not question what is going on inside the mosques 
what exactly are they being taught? How are they being brainwashed? Uh, and over time, when this started to spill over, because you saw young people who had been to these Muslim schools, Muslim centers, and mosques come out and be very anti-Western, anti-British, anti-Dutch, anti-French, uh, and then from there uh, start to link themselves with um, terrorist organizations, carry out terrorist activities. And over and over again, what we did in the West was address the superficial symptom, the violence. Oh my goodness, we should stop these young people from becoming violent. Oh my goodness, it's because they're excluded. Mm. which was true. Oh my goodness, it's because of this or the other. But we never went to the core of the problem, which is these, this infrastructure of Islamist brainwashing um, that, um, that has yeah, trapped the hearts and minds of many, many young people. So, so you've you said earlier that it's actually that we don't know the, the the numbers and the and you know what percentage of Muslims, let's say in Britain or Europe, believe what exactly. <laughs> um, but since October seventh, and I've witnessed in, in this in my city of London, every weekend there are marches. Now those marches include radical left, Corbynista. Socialist Worker Party types, but also they have um, uh, Hamas sympathetic groups. Uh, I was particularly shocked on October 9th before Israel had even responded to be uh, to meet people who are coming back from the Israel embassy in Kensington on the tube who were wearing their kefir, who were celebrating. You yeah. know? And we saw the footage from in front of the Israeli embassy, hundreds if not thousands of people were there putting off flares on their knees praying Allahu akbar it was a day of glory it was it was like a, a total and utter feast of revelry yeah so it seems now and and these marches and they include many other types it's i will pay it's not one group there's mm -hmm. many groups but they have numbered up to hundreds of thousands so it seems since Oct october 7th yes it seems like actually there's quite a lot of people who are Hamas sympathetic. It's difficult to unpack because there's a pro-Palestinian tradition as well and, and point of view, and, and there are there are legitimate grievances to an extent. I mean, I wouldn't say so for October. You're celebrating of uh, on October 9th. I don't think there's anything legitimate there to be celebrating. But um, the general pro-Palestine yeah. conflict. But I, I want to stop you there and say you're too young now to. Um have seen, say, what I saw and people my age saw in at least the last two decades. After October 7, what you're describing uh, um, as the events after October 7 and how these larger numbers of people are coming out of the woodwork with openly radical Islamist slogans, objectives, uh, from the river to the sea is an Islamist slogan. It's it's uh, the elimination. The goal is to eliminate Israel. That's an Islamist objective. Shia Islamist, Sunni Islamist. It's a global Islamist objective. Um, these were things. Uh, the fact that now it's out on the streets uh, and uh, and not just a few days, but like openly on the streets, is something that I think takes us back to that fringe versus mainstream, where 20 years ago, um, every time we had 
an outburst of Islamist violence or support for Islamist violence, the wise old man would say, it's just a minority. It's just a fringe. It's a small group. Uh, I want you to visualize when 9-11-2001 happened. I was in Amsterdam on that same, exactly the same thing. In exactly that same week, a gaggle of young Moroccan men went out and started celebrating. The Dutch society was shocked. They were stunned by what they had just seen. And they thought, but we thought these young men were Dutch. And we, you know, we don't understand why, how on earth could this possibly be the case? And very quickly, I was working for the Labour Party think tank at that time. Very quickly, um, you know, the mainstream political voices, mainstream political leaders said, it's just a fringe. It's just a handful of young men. The next event was the 7-7 bombings. And again, a lot of people went out celebrating. and But still, it, the numbers were so small that cheered on in, that. In Amsterdam, they were celebrating. Um, in, in, in various parts of the West. Uh, it, this is all before online, before the internet, so you couldn't actually see. Mm. But, for, but for those of us who were keen and who were following what was going on, we were pointing and saying, but look, these people are either celebrating it or they're not coming out to say there's something wrong here. And it was, but it's just a handful of people. And every time we were told the numbers are insignificant. And then the cartoon, uh, the cartoons in, in, in Denmark and there you had large numbers of men come out and demonstrate in front of the uh, the Danish embassy and I think the French embassy. And the slogans those people were carrying around, we had those who were against the prophets and one day we will take over Europe and all of these things. They were dismissed as the rantings of bearded man, madmen. And mm. they, they were bearded, but I don't think they were mad. Um, then... Uh, you know, you, if you keep on, you, you remember the attacks in Bataclan. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember the rise of ISIS and you remember just the sheer number of people who left Western societies and who are trying to sneak into ISIS. But every time the mainstream media, mainstream politicians would say, it's just a minority. The whole thing was presented as something, demographically speaking, that was manageable. Mm -hmm. It's shocking but it's manageable. We can, we can do this. And I think what you're describing, what the 7th of October is showing us once again is this is a persistent problem. It's becoming structural. Demographically speaking, this is huge. And in a matter of time, if this carries on and it will carry on, you see more and more confidence in how these Islamists think that they have a pathway to taking over parts of Western society. They have been able to take over parts of neighborhoods. They have been able to um, unsettle political parties by threatening to vote differently if they didn't get what they want, forcing political parties to adopt positions that they actually don't believe in. And then what you're describing about Britain now, where you say the MPs can't vote on a resolution with their conscience because they're too terrified of what might happen outside. Mm. So I think now you can no longer argue that this is a fringe problem that is manageable, that we can just ignore. I think you can't do that anymore. Not only, and, and not only that, 
throughout these last 20 years, with all of these events that I'm describing, there was this constant anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish verbal violence, psychological violence, and then actual physical violence. Uh, If if you look at, obviously everybody will say, well, anti-Semitism is baked into the European cake. I mean, we've had anti-Semitism in Europe and Jew hatred in Europe for so long. That is what erupted in the Holocaust. All of that is true. But right after the Holocaust, we came out and said, never again. And that was the case until radical Islam, political Islam came here. And what is now so-called poor Palestine is actually really anti-Semitism and Jew hatred dressed up as an anti-colonial movement. How intrinsic is anti-Semitism to Islam? Is it in the same way that anti-Semitism was baked in the cake in Europe, to use your language? Is there a similar... um, could you say the same about Islam, or is it is it the extremist of Islam? So again, I, I'm I'm just not going to use the word extremist because I think the word extremist, modern moderates, these words they don't really illuminate anything. In fact, if anything, they obfuscate. So it's better to talk about, say, the Medina Muslims and the Mecca Muslims. And so when I was growing up, um, though I first of all never seen a Jewish person before, so the proximity matters, doesn't it? And so a lot of, a lot of Muslims. Um, if they are not acquainted with Islamism, uh, I think they just think, you know, there are people there who live in Palestine. Um, they are the victims of Israel and the Jews, and therefore I hate the Jews, or the Jews are wrong, or the Jews are bad, or the Jews are anti-Islamic. But it is mild compared to the organized action to seek to eliminate Israel or all Jews from the face of the earth. And that is Islamist. Mm. And that is the objective. I mean, in 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the Shia radical, he came to power in Iran. And one of his key priorities, if not his key priority, was to eliminate the state of Israel. So that's the elimination of Israel is baked into the Islamist cake. Um, and well, so the, the, the anti-Jewish hatred we're seeing in Europe, in America right now, is Islamist-driven mainly. That is not to say that the far-right anti-Semitism is gone. It's not. And the anti-Semitism on the left is not gone. In fact, what's interesting is the anti-Semitism on the left is actually piggybacking now on the Islamist-driven anti-Semitism. Mm. And so all of these weird forces are now coming out and combining to make it mainstream, to make it legitimate to hate the Jews. You, you've written a lot about, over the last few years, about wokeism, woke, progressivism. It's very curious to see progressives defending Islamism. Islamism, by your definition, in this conversation, certainly, um, like the destruction of Israel. Why is it, do you think, that those two, I've actually done a conversation, had a conversation with James Lindsay about this and he calls it the Red Green Alliance and he has some theories about why. Why, why is it that those two have found each other rather unlikely bedfellows? How, how, how is it that progressives are defending what is a highly conservative, to put it mildly, yeah. ideology? 
Yeah. So James Lindsay, whom I admire for his work and his honesty about uh, just really the work he has done with Helen Pluckrose, Peter Bogosian, they've done, I think, all the work that needs to be done on wokeism and why they're doing this. But the reasoning that uh, the woke's social justice capital S, capital J, and their grievance against the structures of Western society, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist, you know, they moved away from the proletariat, from the haves and the have-nots and trying to get things for the have for the have-nots. It seems that they've moved away from that and they've now come to this postmodernist romantic conclusion that the only way to achieve justice is to decolonize, to bring down all the structures, start off with a blank slate. And of course, that tells you that they have this shared agenda with the radical Islamists who also want to bring down the structures. Their objective is different, but the language they use is similar. And you can see why, um, ironically, the local Marxists in what we call Iran today allied themselves against the Shah of Iran with the Islamists led by Ayatollah Khomeini back in the day. And when the Islamists came to power, the first thing that they did was to disempower the Marxists. <laughs> they, they exiled them, they threw them into prison, um, they denied them positions yeah. of power, um, they slaughtered them. And so it's very interesting now to, to see this unfold in the West, especially with records like that. And this, this, um, this didn't just happen in Iran. It happened everywhere where the Islamists uh, got the upper hand. Um, they immediately rid themselves of their secular, uh, radical, uh, they could be Marxist or Baathist wings. And so these are dynamics where they, they really understand one another in Arab countries. But here, as I think James Lindsay will point out, the people seeking to decolonize in the name of, you know, saving Palestine or liberating Palestine. The word liberation is is um, is used now these days in very interesting ways. But they see people of color. They see people who are formerly colonized by the white male heterosexual. Um, they also have. I mean, there's a great deal of literature in how. Uh, they seek to achieve justice through violence. And uh, you can see, I, I've written a piece for the Wall Street Journal a few, I think a year or two ago, on the similarities that I see between the Islamists and the woke. Um, but what, again, I just have to repeat the irony of of seeing slogans like queers for Palestine. And yeah. So back to my country, Britain. As I've said earlier, there's about 4 million Muslims. How many of you don't like using the moderate extreme, let's say Medina, Mecca Muslims, but they are here and they are British and many of them have been here for generations. You've mentioned earlier about assimilation and integration. I want to work, I want to ask about this because I want to understand this because mm. this seems crucial to our future is that how is it that we can be unified as a nation with different beliefs so i guess the first basic question is is islam compatible with british values um muslims who seek 
to define their faith as something personal and unique to themselves um, can make their Islam compatible with, and, and we've seen that. I want to name one example, the Aga Khan communities all over, but I'm sure they're in Britain too. Um, they The way they define Islam and the way they live and practice Islam is completely compatible with Western life. The radical Islamist Muslim Brotherhood agenda is not. Um, it seeks to destroy our values, um, not only in Britain, but everywhere. And um, so the the short answer to your question is the radical Islamist agenda is not compatible with okay. British values. The little I know of British values. So then for those more Mecca-style Muslims, yeah. what and how how do we in turn practically speaking in terms of policy, like how can we help integration? How can we we're told constantly that yeah. diversity is our greatest strength. I happen to believe yeah. that unity is our greatest strength. So I'm trying to find yeah. what is it that's going to unify us so that we can prosper together as a nation. I think courage. I think our leaders have to have the courage to come together and uh, admit that we failed and that when the problem was much smaller uh, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, there were things that we should have done that we didn't do. And that now, um, as time goes by, uh, it becomes more urgent that we do these things. And why does it need courage? Because you are going to have to come to the conclusion that you have to take this infrastructure away from the Islamists that are, that's used to radicalize uh, communities. So the mosques? Mosques, schools, Islamic centers, etc. I, I mean, I don't care about the structures. The buildings themselves can stay. But those, Who's running them? It's the people who run them, and it is what those people who run them have to say. Um, that is, it, it takes a great deal of courage, but I think sooner or later you have to come to that conclusion, and the sooner the better, because as you can see, um, this is a problem that's only expanding. And when I was, I, I'll just step back a little and take you back to when I was in the Netherlands and I came into parliament and I was asked uh, what I thought, you know, and and I went and found, uh, I think, some of the most serious thinkers in the Netherlands who were genuinely interested in welcoming and assimilating the Muslims that we had in Holland. And the conclusions we reached is, to assimilate into a society that is, I'll use a different word, to acculturate. Hmm. You have to become part of the story of that society. Mm. You have to understand its history. You want to become a part of its destiny. And that happens, that acculturation happens through school, through all the meaning-making and the knowledge-producing institutions. And we wanted to welcome them into those but if you establish an alternative 
parallel, mm. meaning making and knowledge producing uh, infrastructure with a completely different objective that is totally hostile to the host society, then you you, you don't achieve that acculturation objective. And so to be brave enough, if you have the courage, you're going to say, we're not going to allow that infrastructure. And we're not there. We've allowed that infrastructure in all of these countries, and we've seen what it has wrought. And now we're in the hard position, instead of saying, no, you can't do this, which was the case 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Now we're in a place where we're saying, we've allowed you to do this, but we're taking it away from you, which is a much harder position to be in. I, I love that idea of acculturation, and, and uh, it's a very positive attitude. But practically speaking, thinking this through, yeah. as I, to repeat, there are 4 million Muslims in Britain. Yeah. So if you mean to change the schooling systems of Muslim schools are uh, going into the mosque and the, that's like, I just cannot picture how that will actually happen. The, uh, you have to also understand that of the 4 million Muslims, not all of them are Islamists. In fact, many of them hate the Islamists because they frustrate their life. They make them um, uh, feel like they're pariahs. Um, they they don't want terrorists. They don't want to raise terrorist children, and they don't want. They don't hate the society they are in. So I think there mm. is going to be some collaboration to be done. But that is to find the Muslims who don't want any, to, don't want to be a part of any of this. But it is sooner or later you're going to have to reverse that process. If you don't reverse that process, and it goes on the way it goes on, demographically speaking through immigration, through birth rates, and through this determined infrastructure that's constantly churning out this brainwashing of young people and really capturing the hearts and minds of every young Muslim, um, you're going to find yourself in what one thinker described as the former Yugoslavia, hmm. the Balkan states. It's, you're going to see a Balkanization. The ghettoization is forming. Then it's going to be a Balkanization what we call social cohesion, that is now already fraught. Um, I think it's going to be eroded even more. I think you're going to have a distrust of societies, and then you're going to have riots that are now underway in Ireland, um, constantly underway in France. Mm. Um, the, the, the problem with finding these, I love the idea of are trying to encourage courage. Yeah. And the problem for the Mecca Muslim types in Britain is that when they put the head above the parapet, they're given death threats. And yes. it's, it's like it's, your it's, MPs. It, quite. And it's even more perilous for them than the non Muslims uh, are talking about the issue of Islam. Yeah. Because their lives are in danger. And, and so, where, how, where are those? How do we? Give how do we create space for those Britons, those Muslim Britons? How do we how do we give them a, a platform and a voice? I think the 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 really brave, courageous Muslims, uh, some of them still pious Muslims, some of them ex-Muslims like myself, um, who think that they can come out and speak out against this, they have done that and they're doing it. Mm. And some of them are managing it, and some of them feel disillusioned and disheartened and feel that what they're doing is futile. It puts them in danger, and they don't seem to achieve anything, and they seem to be rejected mm. themselves by the societies that um, they want to preserve. So let me put that fast there. 
But what I think I want to be very explicit about is that we cannot have a system where you're going to set one group of citizens against another group of citizens. This isn't something for the citizens to do anymore. Mm. I think what we're looking at is for our elite. It's the people we've elected and put in office, whether they're on the center left or on the center right. Um, it's about the people who are in charge of our economics and our academics and so on. It's these people, our elites, to come together and say, this is a problem we can't ignore anymore. Mm. We can't live in denial anymore. We are seeing the, 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 I mean, you have to go and visit places like Sweden. Um, you have to understand that in Germany, the AFD is now almost the biggest party. Every country in Europe that has accepted numerous numbers of Muslims, that has also allowed, while allowing this Islamist infrastructure to flourish, is facing the exact same problems. We're seeing the same things in Michigan in America. This problem What's is, happening in Michigan in America? I haven't, I haven't well, followed that. Um, and it's not just Michigan, but it's happening across uh, some of the states um, where there are large numbers of Muslims that can, in fact, affect the election outcome in 2024. Rashida Tlaib, who is um, an elected member from Michigan into the Congress, has threatened and is, is going around Michigan telling, she's a Democrat, and she is telling her constituents not to vote for President Biden. Or not to, I, I think she was, she was describing a local place. But I mean, I read into it as don't vote for them because they're not giving us what we want. Relating to Israel. Relating to Israel in this case. Mm. But uh, in other cases, I mean, it, it had to do with the LGBT communities in Michigan, which have been hounded out or silenced. So it's not just... Uh, we always say it starts with the Jews, but it doesn't stay there mm. um, in, in terms of these hatreds. But I just think it is, I really want to be explicit that you cannot, it's irresponsible now to to ignore this problem, to pretend, to deny and pretend that this is something that's going to go away on its own. And it's not something that you can give to residents, you really, uh, citizens, you don't want one subset of the population attacking, taking matters into its own hand and attacking another subset of yeah. the population. That's exactly what you want to avoid. And the way to do it is for our leaders to come together and say, how do we tackle this? Yeah. But they have to be honest with one another. Yeah. And you cannot allow this infrastructure to continue. Yeah, so I, so on that, I I have not got much hope because if you look at the response to various Islamist attacks, you go back to Salman Rushdie, they should that that should have been a, a, a matter for you know a, there should have been a military a kind of response to Iran after what happened to him but there wasn't there 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 after seven seven there was a prevent program which has been total flop um, and after Manchester Arena it was love not hate you just see this slow change and now after Mark Freer after. Uh, th this last week, Lindsay, uh, what's happened in, in Parliament with Lindsay Hoyle, the reaction is kind of like we've got to, 
we've got to protect ourselves. We, we, you know, we're not talking about it. So there's like maybe private conversations we're having, but no one publicly talking about it. At least after seven seven, mm-hmm. there was a public conversation. Yeah. Now, if the uh, very no few people who talk about it, like Suella Braverman, she gets for criticize for saying multiculturalism has failed. She gets hounded out of the. She got hounded out as, as Home Secretary. She. Yeah. Th- there's just punishment. That, so the hope of the elites. And the politicians having this conversation so that it doesn't end up getting violent, so that there's good-hearted, good-faith conversation at the top. I, I'm very little faith of that happening. Uh, do you have any hope of that happening? Well, I, I mean, like I said, I don't really – I'm describing to you what I've seen, what I've experienced, um, and it's exactly what you're describing now. But mm. this was building up over the last two decades – and I mentioned Christopher Caldwell in the article, but he is an American who came as a journalist to observe and then wrote the book, The Revolution Underway in Europe, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe. And the reflections on the revolution he's talking about is the Islamist takeover. Um, and revolutions take a long time. So very often you can ignore and be in denial for a long time until uh, until there is that moment where things flip. But before Christopher Caldwell was the British historian Bernard Lewis, um, Walter Lacour. There were really big, big minds, great thinkers. Neil Ferguson, my husband, wrote, uh, uh, said something about Eurabia probably 20, maybe even 30 years ago. And um, this was all just based on the demographic side of it. Europeans are not having babies, getting old, a, a young generation coming from Muslim-majority countries, and then this infrastructure that totally turns them into radical Islamists. Again, not all of them, but enough to create this sort of unsettled um, experience that we're all going through and the failure of social cohesion. And then what does that mean? And so we're getting tastes of what it means, We, you know, flavors of it. Mm-hmm. You've got to go to certain parts of Sweden, which you actually can't go because you, you can't. Mm. Parts of France, parts of Britain, parts of Germany, parts of, I would say even in this case, parts of America. Um, and so how, seeing this and seeing that it's just not going away, it's getting worse and worse, are you just going to sit around and let it happen? Mm. Uh, and I'm talking to the leadership uh, in America, we are very, very polarized. We have it's very, very difficult for us to come together. But I am told the British have a royal family and a king, and I wish him well. May he live long. But perhaps it's on that level where, as the figurehead, who's above, you know, the daily fray of politics, maybe he can bring these people together and say, "We've got to do something about this." Well, I'm going to bring in a bit of pessimism now. Yeah. Um, and th- we mentioned the term Islamophobia. You're bringing in pessimism now? I think what <laughs> we were talking about was all pessimistic. <laughs> well, because if we're on the topic of expecting politicians to do something. Yeah. And I think it is important to note, as we already have done, that there is Muslim hate on the rise. And I think this actually just proves your point, is that there isn't being a discussion a truthful, honest discussion at the top of society about yeah. what's going on. And so what's actually happened is there's a, rise in, a huge rise in anti-Semitism, huge uh, rise in anti-Muslim hate, uh, because there's this frustrating people taking yeah. it out. And it, and that's not acceptable, and that has to be changed. So but yeah. So here's, here's my uh, black pill for you. 
the Labour Party, who almost certainly will come to government, have they take this as their definition of Islamophobia, which is from the APPG definition, as rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize Islam was a race. That's the Labour Party. So they're, they're going to have that dis- definition. So they, they're framing criticism, they're framing Islamophobia as a race issue, obviously ignoring that if you're from yeah. West Africa, East Africa, Albania, the Balkans, yeah. uh, Pakistan, there's all the different races of Muslims. It's, of course, original. So then if you want to talk about dishonesty, it's a completely dishonest definition of what Islamophobia is. Then... It gets worse than that, by the way. But can I just comment on that? Because you call it dishonesty. It's cowardice. It is the most cowardly statement because it wholeheartedly swallows what that's exactly what the Islamists dictated. And then the Labour Party takes that on and says, it's this is what the Labour Party believes. They don't believe it. They're scared. They're terrified of what the Islamists will do. They're terrified of losing elections. But beyond losing elections, I think they're also terrified of the violence. Mm-hmm. And so that is a statement that is accepted, not because one believes in I don't think Keir Starmer believes in it. I think he had to go along with it. He's because he's trying to win. Because it's supposed to make common sense, numerical common sense, mm-hmm. maybe. He wants to win the election. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he he reckons that it's best not to upset the Islamists. And if he gets a majority, that 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 becoming an a, a, a an official government definition of Islamophobia becomes a very real thing. It's something that's been argued for a long they time. They are going the... to stand on it. The Islamists are going to stand on it. They are going to say they will try and turn and turn try and turn that into a bill. They tried that several times, and in some places they succeeded. The whole um, array of hate legislation that we've been see- seeing, uh, hate speech legislation we've been seeing, it comes, it stems from that. So I hated to break it to you because another one of the definitions is on the Labour Party website is to suggest that Muslims individually or as a group in British society pose a threat to British or European society, civilization or values, for example, by claiming that Muslims are a demographic threat to British people by claiming that Muslims are taking over British society or civic or political institutions through their presence in the same or by catastrophizing immigration from Muslim-majority countries. Unfortunately, that means that this entire conversation has been Islamophobic. Yeah, it's been Islamophobic, but I think the irony of it all is (laughs) the word phobia. Mm. Fear of Islam at the moment, uh, for the last few decades and going on is not an irrational fear. Mm. And so uh, I think we we should go beyond these smears. Um, The word racist, the word Islamophobe, all of these these, um, language that was invented to, and we're going back to where we started, paint people into a wall because they don't want to be called bigots. I think it's losing its effectiveness yeah um and it has to lose its effectiveness because we are where we are now and it's very dangerous because then when it's, it's, actual anti-muslim hate comes up when actual racism comes up yeah we're, when you keep calling everyone far right yeah then when the actual far right turn up 
which they're in danger of doing if we don't sort out these problems. Yeah. Well, I think what you have to, uh, again, you're too young to, you haven't, you, I, I don't know how old you are when you are, and, and the people who are going, who, who, who listen to you, and um, they're too young to remember. But just go back to what the Balkans looked like. In the early 1990s, 1991, 1992, what the Balkans looked like, um, that's what, where Europe is headed. And so you faff around about words, phobe this and phobe that, far right, and all this just this nonsense, really. Um, because, and for me, all of these expressions are just, it's, it's denial. It's, these, our elites are too terrified to think through this problem and come up with an acceptable solution. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, they allow these write-ups to become part of the program. And they say, let's just appease these Islamists because maybe it will get better. And it never gets better. And the local populations are rising up against this. They are not far right. Mm. These are sincere local populations who are saying, we don't want to live this way. We don't want to be overwhelmed by immigrants who come here, who don't hate, uh, who hate us, who hate our way of life, who um, attack our daughters, who make our streets unsafe, who wants to impose these uh, um, these ideas on us, and they're rising up against it, and they are not far right. But it's the elites that are allowing this to happen. Mm. If if the people whom we've elected into these governments, don't do anything about it, then you're leaving this to you're leaving this to the population. And that's why I keep saying it's going to be like the Balkans. Yeah. And in some areas, that's already the case. I mean, look at what's going on in Ireland. There, there's a immediately comes to mind is I think this is about a year ago what happened in Liverpool, where there yeah. were a bunch of um there there were some hostels or hotels where refugees were let to stay and then a couple of the refugees were caught trying to molest young local girls yeah and there was a big um protest of working class scousers outside the um hostel and the all of the mainstream media called it far right protests yeah uh, pretty much ignoring what had actually happened like the true crime yeah of young uh, young british girls getting molested uh, and, and, and i could talk about the grooming gangs at length no, but There's i a... mean what are these working class men supposed to do they're damned if they defend their girls they're damned if they don't mm. so they either allow their women to be molested and raped and assaulted or they defend them and then they're called far right and that you're seeing this all over europe Every European country that has a major Muslim population is going through the exact same problems. And some of the, and we talked about radical Islam, we talked about political Islam, but we didn't talk about some of the cultural aspects, such as just the sheer misogyny, mm. the hatred of girls and women, and what they do to girls and women. We haven't talked about that at all. That's not, yeah, that's there's not people. Uh, who are flaunting religion when they do that. Uh, they're just lustful men out there to get women. But they, they come from an environment where it's okay to hurt women. So uh, so there's a, the, the, I've been following some of these speakers, and there's one guy I've been following called Dili Hussain, who's, I think, part of Five Pillar and, and uh, would probably come in, I don't know exactly, but might come in your Medina definition of, yeah. of Muslim. And, and he 
I think to, there's a germ of truth in what he says in that if you look at British or European girls, they are, um, by compared, by comparison with m- m- traditional Muslim girls, they are, um, and this, I guess this also applies to men, but, uh, sleeping around and, uh, they don't take their themselves seriously. They don't protect their virginity and, Sort of, I guess these aren't far away from like traditional Christian values that he's promoting, and he and, he, and he's he's he sees European as uh, hedonistic and um, has gone too far down down that that path. So that's a kind of the case for a traditionalist, and I think that that some Europeans would agree that that's that's true that it's gone too far, and then and then he will use that as as a way of presenting the 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 muslim point of view on how women um, women should be behave and and should be treated and so basically he is giving an islamist's recipe don't allow women to be out and about women who are not dressed the way they should be who don't stay at home women who don't behave like muslim women deserve to be raped and assaulted and molested that's what i read into that statement mm. And so this whole concept of equality, where we are equal as men and women and equal before the law and free to move about any hour of the day or night anywhere, which is, that is European law, European culture, Western culture, Western civilization is exceptional because it has created circumstances where women and children feel safe and are safe and take their safety for granted. That's the aspiration. Mm. And so when you come in and you say, oh, well, you have this lustful man and oh, the only way maybe this should be addressed is uh, it's the women should change their behavior. That's what he is telling you is you've got to Islamize your society. Mm. It's the same as telling Jewish people, don't look Jewish, remove the kippah, bring down the locks, mm. cut your hair, act as if you're not Jewish in that way then you wouldn't be molested because if you look Jewish and you are attacked, mm. you sort of brought it on yourself. And it's the same with gay people. Don't look gay. Don't hold hands. Don't kiss if you're a lesbian couple or a, or a homosexual couple because guess what? what you ha- it's, it's just not commonsensical for you to behave that in certain places. You're basically accepting the change in norms. Mm, that's such an interesting observation. I, uh, about two weeks ago, there was, or maybe a week ago, there was a, a video of someone in Scotland, I think in Edinburgh, wa- uh, from the side of the road watching a pro-Palestine uh, walk. And he, he was a Jewish man, he had a big beard, and he had uh, Mag and David around his neck. <laughs> and he's completely peaceful. He's just watching. A policeman comes asked, up to him and asks him to hide his Mag and David <laughs> yeah. so as not to inside the crowd insight, yeah so uh, the police in some sense have in, in internalized that worldview that you describe absolutely so in other words it's it's implemented it's a de facto it's your default reality in some areas in your country it is common sense to do this again i remember this 20 years ago from the netherlands when um some of these Muslim schools, and sometimes they weren't even Muslim schools. It's just that the majority of students came from Muslim households. Um, and they would protest um, lessons against the Holocaust. They weren't going, they were, they were going to skip the chapters that dealt with the Holocaust. Uh, do you know what the Dutch thought was common sense to do? Hmm. Not to teach. 
and violence against gay couples in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, some of these major cities where you have a large majority of Muslims in some neighborhoods. In those neighborhoods, gay people were told, don't look gay. Jews were told, don't appear to be. So that was how the problem was dealt with. It was always to appease, to accommodate, to deny, to pretend, to buy time. Mm. And the argument, which maybe made sense back in the day, it didn't make sense to me, but it made sense to some of the people across the table from me who were making these arguments was, time will take care of this. Mm. They will sooner or later become like us, just give them time. Mm. And what are we seeing now? No, we are becoming like mm. them. Mm. We are hiding our Star of David. We are hiding you know, our affection for one another if we happen to be gay. Yeah. We are, as women, being told, ah, careful. I know this from Sweden. I've written a whole book on what happens to women in Europe in some of these places. The women have completely adapted because it becomes a matter of survival. Mm. That's your book, Pray, which Pray, I highly which, recommend yeah, to read, uh, just, listeners. Unfortunately, I published it during COVID, so I never came. I never got the opportunity to come to Europe and um, and promote it. But I think that book should be republished, updated, and republished because it tells you the whole thing. It doesn't only tell you that these uh, victims uh, of circumstances that is not of their choosing. Um, have adapted in the ways that we've just described, but that they've been let down by the elites. Even just the demographics, the counting, the gathering of data, we don't do that anymore. We don't do it honestly. So we downplay. All of these reports and statistics are published that downplay the problem. The, can you spell that out for me specifically? The, the, which when problem? I was writing that book and I was seeking to talk to some of these government officials, who just give me the data of, you know, um, sexual assault committed by immigrant men, illegal aliens, etc. Um, we don't really collect data that way. Um, we don't. I would find a report here or there, but then there would be some other reports published on top of that saying um, it's these reports are exaggerated. It's racist. It's far far right. And sometimes they would acknowledge. Um, that yes, there's something going on here that men from countries that don't respect women um, are acting in ways that, you know, raping women, raping women in groups, assaulting women in groups, making them unsafe. I had also the testimonies of many, many women that I spoke to who were just describing what it was like to live in these neighborhoods and how the neighborhood was changing around them. Some could afford to move and then the others who couldn't afford to move. But uh, you couldn't find the data, or even if you found it, you would be told, well, it's just really, um, you know, it's just 9% of, of, all, of all sexual assaults. Okay, so what's the population of um, men from Afghanistan in Austria? Ah, oh, okay, well, no, well, never mind, you know, we're not going to tell you the total population, because obviously you can figure out. Yeah, it'd be 1% or 0.1% of the population, 29% of the They're responsible for, at, in some of these places, it was 40% of sexual assaults were committed by people who were only, what we were being told, only 1% or only 2% or less than that, 0.1% mm. of the population were responsible for a massive number of sexual assaults. And the population knows it, whether you, whether you have the headline in the newspaper or not, it doesn't matter. In those neighborhoods where these things are occurring, people know it and they talk about it. 
And now there is the internet and people are exchanging information without any kind of filtering or editing. And, uh, and, and that is what makes me worry that people are going to start to take the law into their own hands. Mm. You'll be familiar with the grooming, grooming gang story in, in Britain. Yes. And it's, it's one that the media and the politicians won't touch. And there's punishment if, if you do. It doesn't matter which party you're, you're at. Um, and as I a know everything about the grooming gangs. It is part of the story in that book. Mm. And I think, again, that sends the message that it's okay to groom white working class girls. Um, in fact, to my horror, some of the uh, middle-class white people were describing these girls as white trash. To describe human beings as trash while you're preening around about human rights and uh, putting on your woke hat, I-, I thought that was absolutely disgusting, and it still is. So to have 10, 11, 13-year-old girls uh, be gang-raped by men in their 20s and in their 30s, and not once and twice, but be passed over one to the other for months, uh, to excuse that, to cover it up, to cover up for the perpetrators, is to invite more of that. Do you think it's uh, worth de- delineating or being more specific about who the perpetrators are in, in this case? So, for example, in Britain, it's predominantly men from a very, very specific region of Pakistan. So seeing as a lot of this conversation has been about Islam, it's, is it worth delineating saying this isn't necessarily uh, an Islam issue? It's that this one specific group, because maybe in that specific region of Pakistan, they have a different culture and attitude towards women. For the sake of position, it's very important to delineate these things. So there is no... Uh, Islamic um, rule that says go and rape. And in fact, in Islam, if you have sex outside of marriage, whether you're male or female, you deserve to be punished. In practice, women get more punished than men because it's very difficult to prove um, that a man has had sexual contact uh, before marriage it becomes easier to prove for women because of pregnancy um, and and other sorts of trouble that women can get into. So the activities of women in practice are controlled more than that of men. But Islam does not preach that women should be raped Hmm. or gang raped or any of these atrocities we are seeing. These are tribal practices and these are very primitive practices. And some of these people are coming from remote, primitive places. But it's very, very important to be explicit and transparent about it. It's important to warn communities when you are placing people from these remote areas and say, these are the people that we're bringing into your community. And that is why that acculturation process is so urgent and so important and so needed. And it's, again, I don't know, like you, I'm, I'm feeling very pessimistic because when the numbers were small, some of these things could be done, but now I don't know. I honestly don't know what we can do. I think it, it's it, it you, you're going to have to take this as a it's, it's an issue of its own. This is this is above political parties. It, it's it's not something for the right or the left parties. It's for the establishment to get together and see what all the symptoms that we've described, and it's just going to get bigger and worse. How do we avoid being the former Yugoslavia. 
I'm going to try and attempt to pull this together in a more optimistic direction. <laughs> yeah. I've got an idea about how I might be able to do that mm -hmm. because um, I think it's very important to have these honest conversations, even if they're difficult and even if we don't yet have the full answers. But although I fully agree that it's up for these people in power to start having honest conversations, a good start. And you're, you've been having that honest conversation as a parliamentarian and as a, a, a global phenomenon speaking around the world. So you've been leading by example. So I only hope that more leaders will be inspired by you. And, and so that at least you at least do what you preach, which is, yeah. which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. um, so my attempt to be more positive, yeah. if I may, is to talk and ask about your becoming an apostate twice over. Twice over, yeah. And um, coming to Christianity. You spoke about it. You wrote about it in a beautiful unheard piece. Mm -hmm. Actually, the unheard piece it's almost your conversion to Christianity. It was almost framed in a sort of civilizational, semi-political sense. But mm. your live uh, interview with Freddie Sayers at Unheard, which I had the privilege of, of being there for, you actually took, talked a bit more about the spiritual side of it. And it's a very personal question, so perhaps it's difficult to go there. And I'll, maybe I'll give the example of myself, which is that when I came to Christ, although I would say I was philosophically at the church door, it wasn't until the experience of a painful divorce that brought me, that pushed me to that final leap of faith. Yeah, And I just wondered whether you, you had maybe had a, an experience like that. I definitely had the experience of suffering and, and pain um, that I found inexplicable and that I didn't understand. Just the pain was just there. And um, uh, and I I I tried to ease that pain uh, on my own. Um, it wasn't a physical pain. Um, it is what I would now describe as a pain of the soul, um, a spiritual void. Um, but I didn't want to give into that because, of course, I was this celebrated atheist, and I felt that this is something I could. Um, accomplish on my own uh, with the help of science. And so I started reading um, about the brain and seeing psychiatrists and uh, trying to to get rid of and minimize what I was feeling by sedating myself with alcohol. I noticed that when I drank wine, I felt more cheerful. And so I thought, well, that's I, I, I can cope this way. But um, it, it, the pain just it never eased, and the suffering never went away. And uh, I got myself, I think, into a place where I had um, to surrender, and and I felt this sense of surrendering to to the void. Just pure darkness. I was going through periods where I wanted to black out, and that's all I wanted to do was just black out. And when I came to, I wanted to black out again. Um, and 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 then I, I told you one of the places where I I sought help. Um, this woman explained to me what was wrong to me, what was wrong, and she said, "Of course, we see people like you all the time." And after listening to my story, she said, I think you're looking 
put it in the wrong places. I explained to her I wanted for nothing when it came, materially speaking, uh, two beautiful, healthy children, very happily married. Um, my work is doom and gloom, um, but I even had the choice to give up my work if I wanted to. Still, I had this this pain, and then she said, "Well, I would say you have to, you are actually spiritually bankrupt, but in seeking answers." give it a try. And I think I was in this place of, I actually have nothing to lose. And through that, uh, those conversations and what followed, I started to do what I never did before, which was to, to surrender, to mm-hmm. seek help, um, in complete humility, um, in what's transcendent and acknowledge that we have a different dimension altogether, which is just more than just eating and uh, you know satisfying our material needs. That as maybe that's what makes us different from animals is that as humans we do have something called a soul and mm-hmm. a spirit and a mind, mm-hmm. and and it hungers for something more, mm-hmm. and maybe in some people more than others. But I'll only speak for myself and. Mm-hmm. And I started to look, and um, I found the message and the teachings of Jesus Christ profound. And I have to say, I may have done that in the past, but I never allowed myself to. I was too too proud, too, um, in hindsight, probably too stupid. What about Christ? Was there a passage or was there something specific about Christ that turned you to him rather than, let's say, another religion or another uh, transcendental... Um... So, when I when I conceptualized uh, a God, of course, the first thing I did was, and, and that explains my resistance, was I always associated God uh, with horrors, with pain, with threats, fear, intimidation. Um, but when I started to conceptualize, I thought a figure of uh, who's the, the opposite of that. And I think I can sum up the message of Jesus with love. Um, the constant repetition of love, unconditional love. Um, and a God who loves you and died uh, for you. And and what's described as sin, I, I've come to understand as these are just human defects which we, we are born with. That's what makes us complicated as humans, the human condition. And that uh, you can you can overcome that. And it doesn't that actually becomes actual freedom, which is what I've I've always looked for was freedom, freedom of the mind, freedom of the heart. And I think freedom, I've come to that freedom. But Winston, before I go on on this, I also want to tell you, I don't do these things by halves. So I've signed up um, for, I, I, I used to put the label Christian on myself when I have so little knowledge of Christianity. Um, so 
signing up for study of a proper in-depth study of the Old and the New Testament. Mm. Um, and I'll report that, I'll report back on that in, I want to turn that article into a book. Mm. Um, and I think that book length um, space gives me the opportunity to describe the personal journey itself, but also what I mean when I say uh, Christianity now with a big C is um, also where the answer to some of these problems lie. Mm. The social cohesion that's slipping away, not just between Muslims and non-Muslims, but also in general, just set the, uh, the threats of radical Islam aside and just look at our own communities and we are fractured mm. and fragmented. Um, and civilizationally speaking, I don't think we've ever felt this threatened before. And I think that Christianity with a big C um, and the lessons of Christianity, the institutions we inherited from Christianity, the teachings we inherited from Christianity, I think that's what glues us together. And that, that could just be the glue. That could just be where where we find that we can come together on and share a minimal, you know, moral framework uh, to cohere and, and fight this. Uh, go back to um, to the figure of Jesus, and it's his the way he speaks of um, those who are. who are loathed, who are cast aside from society. Uh, the poorest of the poor, the weakest of the weak. I think that message is just the very opposite of um, let's conquer by the sword. And, and I feel my soul is conquered through that message, that message of undying love um, rather than the fear that you may lose your head unless you believe mm. do you think that the, the west can refind its faith i mean we're now britain is now a minority christian country and numbers yeah. are only going down how does britain find its christian soul again I think it's for the remaining Christians who understand what's at stake um, to come together, also set aside their factional differences. It's interesting, after I wrote that article, some of the responses I got from Christians was, um, my church is better than their church, or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't be, don't be taken in by the <laughs> that group, <laughs> that group. Um, uh, which I think is uh, just don't do that. You know, look at the big picture. Mm. Look at what's at stake, and come out and show. You know, demonstrate really what it is to be a true Christian. Mm. Um, and I think that that's this is not everything is broken. I know we've had a very pessimistic conversation, um, but there's still a great deal here 
if we want it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, when I told you I was going into blackout after blackout and I thought it was all over, um, one of the things um, as I was reading through um, this, this, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the big book for Alcoholics Anonymous, um, it's just all you need to do is pray. You've nothing to lose. Just pray and ask and see what happens. And 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 I think I was on my knees there at that time. And I thought I'll just do it. And and then my prayers were answered. And so maybe on a collective, uh, when we despair, maybe all we need to do is just ask. His mm. as someone who was both a Muslim and a Christian and an atheist. Yeah. But specifically both Muslim and Christian. So you would be in a very good position to um to 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 give insight here is where is the crossover? Where's the common ground? Where's the common ground between the Muslims and Christians so that we can Talk, you know, we've talked about unity and cohesion, and yeah. where where is it that you think that we can we can come together? The co- our common ground is our common humanity, and a Christian will say to the Muslim, "I don't, I don't want to convert you, uh, because I think a true Christian believes that conversion again is is conquering the soul through truth." The, the pursuit of truth and not uh, through intimidation. So I don't believe in forcing people to believe in what they don't want to believe in. But the common, it's our common humanity. Uh, a Muslim individual will understand and like any other human being, uh, boundaries. And I think the best, most honest thing that a Christian can do in relationship to a Muslim or any other person, is to lay out where the boundaries lie. Uh, and therein is a great deal of honesty. And so I think as a Christian nation, it was good to say we are welcoming because that's part of our heritage and our legacy is is to be welcoming. But it, that's... Uh, to also lay out and say, here's what we cherish, and and you establishing an infrastructure of spreading everything that's contrary to our values and our legacy. And I think that if if you explain it and you say, we we can't take that anymore, Mm. I think that's also Christian. Mm. And, And in that relationship, you are prepared to share with the Muslim what you have, break bread, develop friendships, Mm live together peacefully, um, but it's important for everyone to know Mm. where the boundaries lie. Finally, on a fun note, because I think that's very optimistic and positive, but now a bit of fun. After you published your letter, your friend Richard Dawkins wrote two open letters in response. The first one, he said... Quoting your article, he, uh, he, in response to you, he said, intelligent people don't believe something because it comforts them. They believe it because and only because they have seen evidence that supports it. And then he went on to say, I and you are no more of a Christian 
than I am. <laughs> is he right? Is it only intelligent people who, uh, or rather, is, is it is it correct that intelligent people can't possibly believe in a metaphysic? So again, I I want to emphasize, uh, Richard is a friend, and I adore Richard very much, and and of course, uh, Sam Harris, uh, my also adore and respect, and and you know my relationship with Christopher Hitchens, um, Lawrence Krauss. I I I I'm definitely not going to um, denounce or turn my back on my atheist friends. They will remain my friends. Um, I want to say, however, there is um, Richard. There is describing one form of intelligence, and that there are, again, to go back to this uh, concept of the spirit and the soul and spiritual um, hunger, need, uh, that you can also describe as a form of intelligence. And I think if you focus on just the material and the material world um, you are developing the intelligence that's relevant for that and you're ignoring that the human being and the human condition is far more complex than just that and, and that's that's what I'd like to say to Richard <laughs> well I should be a bit more fair to Richard because in his second open letter to you he actually yeah. was quite humble and and um said that uh, that he was open to conversation and that he acknowledged that he had perhaps something to learn and you are going to be speaking with him yeah may 3rd and 4th new york city yes and you're going to be discussing these very questions the nature of god the value of god yeah is that a conversation we should be excited about? I think we should be excited about it, um, and also in the spirit of coming together. Uh, and I know I, I call, I call uh, Richard Christian, and he says, you're no more Christian than I am, but I think he, he really is truly Christian. Uh, he doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what he does know, um, what Richard knows, and I think what Sam knows, and what... Um, those of us who understand uh, the value of Western civilization, what they do know is that we really have to come together now. And I think we, um, my uh, atheist friends and I, can illustrate, we can demonstrate um, uh, on that platform, for instance, that it's perfectly fine and it's possible to have different views of the world and have a great affection and respect for one another. And that in itself is a product of Western civilization. I want to demonstrate that we, we are having that. We are able to have that conversation in May here. We, I wonder if that's possible in China today or Russia or any of the Muslim mm. countries. This is what makes us unique. And uh, there's a reason why most human beings want to come here. The failure of Western civilization and Christian civilization is we just don't share the thing that's the most that defines us. And, and, and this is our foundational uh, principles. We just say, you can come here and carry on the way you used to at home. Mm. And then we end up becoming like them instead of them becoming like mm. us. So I look forward to talking to Richard um, and, and showing that, showing uh, that we can do that. Wonderful. Yeah. So I will see you there.
uh, in New York, May 34th. But Ayan, thank you for speaking with me today. There were some very difficult taboo topics to unpick there. Yeah. And thank you for being such a, a, a leading voice and a courageous voice. I'm going to embarrass you and ask you how old you are. I'm 36. So that means it's you, the 36-year-olds, millennials, and people younger than you, the Gen Zs. I think you have to step up now. <laughs> and I know you are stepping up as an individual, but you guys need to step up because it's your world now. Yeah. I'm very glad you say that because yeah. I'm desperate for my generation to step up. Richard is 82. I'm 54. We're fading. We're the ones who are leaving the stage. You're not fading, but... <laughs> but we're leaving the stage and it's it's your world. You, it's your heritage. So you really have to step up mm. and don't let it devolve into violence. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Well, on that note, yes. <laughs> Ayn Hershey a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Thank you so much. Lovely, Winston. Thank you. Thank you for watching the Winston Marshall Show. If you enjoyed that episode, well, I encourage you to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on all podcast outlets if you want just the audio. And of course, on winstonmarshall.co.uk. Thanks for listening.